Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Well, last week I tried to edit on the fly. It was uh, definitely challenging, and hopefully I learned something. So next time I do Second Chronicles, it'll be a little easier. But today, not nearly as uh, uh, daunting of a task, Com- relatively speaking. Ezra has uh, 10 chapters and Second uh, uh, Chronicles 36, so definitely a shorter book. Um, so uh, Jeremiah... Uh, it's been called the weeping prophet. And, um, and he had a lot to weep about, a lot to, to be sorrowful about, um, because he knew what was coming, and he warned Israel, he warned the, the Hebrew people, and they didn't listen. Uh, Jeremiah is um, a prophet, was a prophet called by God during the reign of King Josiah, one of the few good kings of Judah. And he warned Judah to repent, and he said that, you know, if you don't repent, Babylon is going to attack you. And this is well before it even happened, before it was even on the radar, really. But Judah continues in rebellion. They failed to heed Jeremiah's warning. And the city is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon in 597. Remember the the bigger numbers are farther back. Uh, so it, it would be another, um, in the aftermath, an, uh, uh, the king Zedekiah, uh, he rebelled against Babylon, despite Jeremiah's warning. And then the second siege happened, and then that led to the total destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So that's one of those important dates that I keep mentioning. 586 BC is when Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom, that's when that fell. And so um, there was actually, um, uh, and so many people are taken into exile in Babylon, leaving only the poorest people behind. Um, But Jeremiah concludes with a message of hope, and it's fairly well-known, some well-known verses for you. In fact, next year, if if we go according to plan, instead of memorizing a chapter, uh, because I'm, we're doing the second half of Genesis, and like Ecclesiastes, a whole chapter isn't necessarily ideal, right? Uh, in Psalms, I think it was perfect, right? But in Genesis, it's because it's more of a historical book, um, uh, it seem, fit, seems fitting, at least in my view, to maybe choose some verses throughout Scripture that reflect the truths being taught in Genesis, and this happens to be one of them, because as you know, um, Joseph goes through trials, right? He's sold into slavery, and um, I think this verse right here fits well with his experience. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. God preserved Israel uh, through Joseph. Um, And there's more. Um, And, of course, it comes with a condition. You know, we like to talk about God's grace being unconditional, and it is to the extent that you can't earn it. You can't say, well, God, I did this, so you should do this for me. So his grace is 
is its unconditional favor. His love is not something that we can earn, but it still comes in a sense with conditions or a, when a covenant means if you do this, if you, if you call upon me and pray to me, I will listen. So we, we can't just say, oh yeah, great, I believe and everything's terrific and now I can just do whatever I want. Uh, but rather, um, search the Lord. And you can read this. Uh, it, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, but it fits with what happened to Judah, what happened uh, to them. The authorship in uh, Unity of Chronicles, the books tell of First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not really sure who wrote them. Uh, possibly Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles. Good chance that he wrote this book as well. He may have written Nehemiah. Nehemiah is next week, but then Nehemiah uses a lot of first person. I did this, I did that. So we think Nehemiah wrote that book. But what we do know is that the, the four books tell one story. Um, Ezra uh, was presumably born uh, in Babylon in captivity. Um, he's a priest and uh, he's a Levitical priest, descended from uh, Aaron, so it says in the text. Um, he went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, and that's about 458 BC, and so 586, and so, um, you know, just a couple generations after. Uh, the fall of Jerusalem. Um, the ending of Second Chronicles, which is really interesting, and one of the reasons why people might, why we might speculate that First and Second Chronicles and Ezra have the same author, is the very end of Second Chronicles is almost word for word the beginning of Ezra. So, um, for example, I have in my notes. I only have one at the end of Second Chronicles. This is what it says. Now, this is what it says at the beginning of, of Ezra. I'm going to read what it says at the beginning of Second Chronicles. Now, in the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, which is why I mentioned Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that the, he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. As you can see, pretty much word for word, right? Um, but the key here is that he would build him a house in Jerusalem. Um, thus says the king of Persia, the God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. And that's sort of the key uh, theme in Ezra. In Ezra, it's about a restoration and building of the temple. And then next week, Nehemiah would be uh, more political and building the walls. And so more civil. Uh, so Nehemiah would be more civil slash political. And then Ezra would be more uh, spiritual uh, uh, slash you know, worship uh, and repentance, the theme we'll see. Uh, so let's talk briefly about... Uh, the historical setting. So the returning exiles uh, came to Jerusalem in three groups. Uh, Ezra has two main parts. The first part uh, deals uh, 
with Zerubbabel, about, I think, the first six chapters. There's 10 chapters in the book. And so there's going to be probably in your outline an A and a B for content. So Zerubbabel is, is before Ezra. Ezra is writing the history, and then there's a gap, and then Ezra comes, and a large group comes with Zerubbabel. This little symbol here means approximately in mathematics. So approximately 50,000 people came in the first wave uh, that returned to Jerusalem after the captivity. That's under the leadership of Zerubbabel. We'll be talking about him shortly. Then there's a gap. In that gap, Esther happens, the history that's involved with Esther, and that's going to be the book in two weeks. So it's going to be today Ezra, then Nehemiah, then then, uh, Esther, and then I'll finish our group of six with Isaiah. Uh, So there's a gap, and then the the last four chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, will deal with what Ezra experienced. And so, again, much shorter book than, than last week. Then there's a gap, a short gap, but there is, uh, and then this will be the book of Nehemiah, which is next week. There is um, a little bit of overlap. So Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Um, I presumably Ezra was younger, but uh, there is some overlap there. And we'll be, so when we talk about this, we'll probably see this slide again. Um, but that gives you a little, a little bit of an idea of, of some of the, uh, the background. Uh, let's see, I think I might have uh, skipped something. Okay, I have a new slide here. It says in my notes, and so I have to... Um, 10, okay. So the book of Ezra uh, covers a period of just over 80 years, beginning with the decree of Cyrus. While the books of Kings are written from a political point of view, looks like I already said that, Ezra and Nehemiah are written from a spiritual uh, perspective. Uh, Let me explain. Um, So Carter had the privilege of teaching the historical books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and I presume you were in his class before this one, right? And so when you go through those historical books, the emphasis is when I say political, it's more civil, political, wars that happen, kings that were in, bad things that happen, people, the enemies and all that. And so it's more of a it's truly a historical account about events. Whereas while uh, uh, Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, while they are also considered historical books as well, as opposed to like prophetical books like Isaiah and Jeremiah or poetic books, you know, like Psalms, um, they tell a history they're more from a spiritual perspective. As I mentioned in my first class two weeks ago, the writer of Chronicles had a certain um, purpose in mind. It was almost as if he says, okay, you know the history that we had in First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Now I'm gonna give you a perspective from uh, the viewpoint that God was preserving a people for himself, that he was preserving uh, the line of Judah Uh, and ultimately the line for Christ. So I did, let's see, okay, so I'm, um, I think, we we think, and again, more speculation, uh, Daniel was exiled to Babylon as a teenager. Um, He never returned to Israel, um, but he flourished uh, during the reign of of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persia when the new people uh, uh, 
took over. Uh, Daria, or Daniel uh, enjoyed uh, favor. And that's what scripture says. Daniel probably had an influence on King Cyrus. Again, speculation on our part and possibly the pro proclamation which, which he issues in the first year of his reign. This decree, of course, encouraged the Israelites to return and rebuild the temple. And this is the, you know, what I had put on before. This is the beginning of Ezra. And so a, a great deal of time is spent. The temple, as I mentioned last week, temple worship was important to the Jewish people. The temple uh, represented God's presence. Uh, it was, it was, an, uh, they, and I, I can imagine, uh, and you, as I mentioned in the Old, in the New Testament, you know, we see how temple worship was, was very, very important. Uh, but the beginning of Ezra spends a lot of time uh, detailing uh, the rebuilding program. People of what I thought was interesting, the people of Babylon even gave gifts toward rebuilding the house of the Lord. <coughs> King Cyrus also restored uh, the treasures captured from the temple, which I also think is uh, remarkable. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, about 50,000 Jews returned, uh, to, uh, chose to return to the land of Israel. Some, uh, not everybody came back. There were way more than 50,000 Jews probably in Babylon uh, at this time and even uh, extending into Persia. Because what had happened was, um, as I, I think I mentioned this last week, Babylon conquered uh, Jerusalem, but then uh, Persia then went, around, went ahead and conquered Babylon. So now Babylon get, is kicked out. They're not the superpower. Now Persia is the superpower. And they kind of then by extension, since Babylon controlled uh, Judah, then by extension, or that whole region of Israel, what we would call Israel, then by extension now it's under control of Persia. Um, so, um, but some didn't come, you know, they, and, and you, you could understand. I mean, it's a long distance, you're, you're having to uproot your family, and uh, it'd be kind of like, almost like getting on wagons and going to California in the early 1800s or something, probably something similar, right? Uh, only, uh, probably, it was worse back then. Um, but when the Hebrews returned to Israel, they did not begin uh, working on the city walls. Uh, that was later. Uh, they thought first to build the temple, the house of God. That was their mission. And so they, the, the first thing they do is rebuild the altar. And that's this verse here in, uh, that's referring to in chapter 3. The first feast it celebrated is the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is, uh, is a Jewish uh, holiday where uh, people that are Orthodox will, uh, even today, people will put a tent or a shelter, a lean-to in their backyard and sleep in it, you know, as, as kind of a memorial to how uh, they had to uh, sleep in tents uh, when they were exiled before uh, in Egypt and then, you know, wandered in the desert. Um, so these, ex these exiles returning from Babylon travel, and again, I've looked this up, the internet, you know, um, we'd love to be able to say the internet's always right. But what they also is true about the internet is you get different information in different sources. And I suppose the same thing is true with books. I found 500, 700, and 900 miles. 
So I took the average and said 700, but I'm not really sure. And part of the reason is if they, they didn't travel from Babylon to Israel as the crow flies, so to speak. So, so if I go on to Google Maps and, and, and put like um, a line, then it's probably about 500 miles. So if you look on the internet, say, how far is it? Was it from Babylon to Jerusalem? It would, might say 500 miles. But the problem is they don't get to go straight. They have to meander and go where roads will allow them, where mountains will allow them, where lakes, rivers, whatever. And so the biggest number I've seen is 900, the smallest number, 500. But I think, the, I think it's probably at least 700 mile travel and probably took about four months. So it's not, not an easy thing to say, hey, let's go ahead and walk to Jerusalem. You know, it's a, it's a, and take the children and, every, and our belongings and everything else. Um, shortly after the, um, um, after the captivity of, so in Israel, Israel was, con the northern kingdom was conquered before the southern kingdom, Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. When the Assyrians um, conquered the northern kingdom first, what they did is they deported the Jews there as well to various places and even to Babylon. And what they did is they repopulated the area with people from some of the, even Babylonians, but people from some of the surrounding countries. They wanted essentially kind of get rid of the Jews in a sense, get, you know, get rid of their homeland, put new people there, and make it a new country. Uh, that's, uh, you see that uh, this is um, from 2 Kings. King of Assyria brought men from different countries to settle them in the cities of Samaria. This would be uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. This is important um, because when Ezra gets to Jerusalem, wants to rebuild the temple, the people that live in the area, the Samaritans, say, hey, this is a great idea. Let, we worship the same God as you. Let's, let us help you. And um, that's... But you notice that they don't... <laughs> It didn't, doesn't say, when the people came, their, their neighbors came and offered help. It says, now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, so you can see right now the historian is writing this from a point of view that these people were not good. And they're saying, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days. And so... The problem was, they, yeah, they probably were sacrificing in their own way, not, uh, not sacrificing in Jerusalem, certainly, which if you notice and you see, read First and Second Chronicles and read these books, you can see was probably an abomination. They had their own personal high places. They probably still worshiped their pagan gods. It's not like they left what they did. They just added Jehovah to the list you know, of more than likely of their other gods. And so they weren't, um, they weren't of one mind. They, and that was the problem. Um, so they, they really had a corrupted form of, of worship. 
And so uh, their offer to help is flatly refused. Zerbo says, no way, you have no part in this. This is not, uh, this is not what we're, we're trying to do here. And so, uh, and they, they say, look, we've got the decree from the king, the main dude, the guy who's in control of all this. Cyrus says we're allowed to do this. Well, then the Samaritans say, hmm, they, they resent the fact that they didn't let them help. And so now they decide to hinder the work uh, of rebuilding the temple. And they try to discourage them and dishearten them. And really the opposition, their opposition ser really serves to confirm uh, the Zerubbabel's suspicion all along that they weren't uh, sincere in their, their willingness to help. Had they been sincere, they wouldn't have turned nasty and bitter uh, like they did. In fact, they wrote to, to the, uh, the next king, actually several kings who followed Cyrus, trying to accuse the Jews of insurrection and really making life difficult for them. And fo following the laying of the foundation, work is actually hindered for about 15 years. Um, so then a new king is, is uh, in place, and so they read these documents that the Samaritans sent, and they stopped the Jews, and so the, the work ceased, and was stopped until the second reign, reign of a new king, uh, Darius. Um, so Ezra 4 mentions how they tried to work through uh, the opposition to rebuilding um, both the temple and the city, trying to rebuild their homes. Chapter 5 re returns to events that occurred during the reign of Darius, they called Darius the Great. Um, it is at this point that the prophets uh, Haggai, or Haggai, I never know how to say that. Does anybody, anybody like, I probably should look that up. All these years I've been saying Haggai, Haggai, and I just... Haggai, is it? Yeah. You know, I never know, you know. Um, like, nobody names their kid Haggai, right? Right? I mean, am I right? Okay. All right. So anyway, um, so here he is, Haggai, uh, the prophet in Zechariah. They prophesy um, and... Um, they begin to rebuild the house of God. And that's really what this book is, uh, is really focusing on, is rebuilding a temple, restoring authentic worship, repenting. Uh, those are the, th the themes of this book. Um, so uh, they work through opposition. They complete the temple. And honestly, this, this whole temple completion thing, I don't... I mean, it is confusing to me. I've have, having to f figure out. They tell us Ezra tells us that the temple's completed under Zerubbabel, but then in the next four chapters we get to Ezra, and they talk about finishing the temple or completing the temple again. I thought it was complete. So what I've what I've determined, and I'm again, I don't know if I'm 100% right because I haven't read commentaries on this, is Zerubbabel completed the temple, as scripture says, but Ezra comes along and then puts fi finishes, it puts finishing touches on. He does, he's given, I think he gets people, he gets the priest to, to uh, go back to doing their duties. He, he makes it better, basically. I think he, and so, but the word complete finish is used 
both times, and so it's a little confusing. Which is it? At first, I thought maybe it meant that he just, that Zerubbabel will finish the foundations, and then, uh, then Ezra came and finished the temple. But I think it's more what I said formerly. I think it's Zerubbabel who actually built the actual temple, but then uh, Ezra just made it better and, and, and made the use of it better as well. Um, so King Darius finds Cyrus's original uh, decree, and so he orders that the building uh, not be delayed. And what I found remarkable in the story is Darius even ordered that, uh, that, the, that they use taxes from the region to finance it. So the people that were actually opposing the building of the temple actually ended up in turn having to pay for it, which I thought was interesting. And so this is where, <clears throat> and it says, and they finished building according to the command of, of God. And so, um, again, it says that they finished the temple, but then later we're going to read that Ezra completed the temple as well, and this was years later. So, like I said, I had to kind of reconcile that. Um, and so Passover was observed, and this was really a great thing. But then um, some time passes, as I mentioned in that one, one slide, and uh, Ezra comes along. He was a great-grandson of Hilkiah, the high priest in the, during the reign of the godly king Josiah. Hilkiah was the guy that's mentioned where he found a copy of the book of the law that was of the Lord that was given by Moses. And, um, and so Ezra is, uh, like I said, the, the great-grandson of Hilkiah. Only about uh, 2,000 Jews, as I mentioned before, would return under the leadership of Ezra, compared to about 50,000 uh, the first time. Ezra couldn't be a priest in Babylon, obviously, uh, but he did study scripture and prepared himself uh, to be a spiritual leader. When you read uh, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, you get the idea that the people generally had little knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, Ezra is, one of his primary concerns was to get people to know God's law. And even, you know, from an applicative standpoint, it's why people forget. You become prosperous and then you forget. And it's why you know, I think um, thriving churches have Bible studies and we teach and we preach on the word of God. People need to know the word. It's why we encourage you to read through the Bible and read your Bible regularly. We forget. I forget things all the time. The older I get, it seems like I forget more than I know, than I learn. Um, I try to tell people I'm just like making my file box more condensed. That's all. But I tell you, I forget things. I, I forget things all the time. And all the, all the older people here are smiling. Um, they get it. Um, so you young people, you're lucky. Uh, but keep, keep studying. Keep reading the word. And so... Um, um, Ezra set his heart to study the law. Um, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, gives uh, Ezra a letter authorizing the people who were willing, they didn't force people to leave, uh, to go with him to Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, the letter also commanded that 
he should be supplied that all that was necessary for building the house of God. So that's what I found interesting. It's like I read this and I thought, well, I thought the house was built. But again, I think, um, uh, I, I think what, it, what he meant was, uh, again, completing the temple, uh, hiring, you know, giving, uh, paying the priests so that they could make that their job instead of it being part-time. You know, we, are, we want our pastors to be full-time ministers, right? And so when we tithe, and we're, I mean, I'm happy to pay them. It's their job. Now, it's a calling, not a, not a job, so I should be careful about using the word job or even the word, uh, maybe vocations better than the word job. I think there are some pastors maybe in some churches where it is their job. And so I don't like using that word. I would prefer calling. It's their calling, but they, we should support them. And even you know, Paul speaks of the same thing. Paul was a tent maker and did not want to presume that anyone should support him, but he, the labor is worth their wage. Is worth their wage. Um, getting off track here, obviously. Um, so, um, although still under the rule of Persia, Ezra was granted power to appoint magistrates and judges to rule the people in Israel, uh, which was very, which was a new thing. Um, he also instructed, um, was instructed to teach the people the law of God. Uh, when Ezra arrived in Israel, though, he found that the situation was worse than he expected. He probably thought, hey, 50,000 people went a generation or two before me, and these people were on fire for, for the Lord. And it turns out, and once they got settled, then it was a typical thing. And we see as we read, you know, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then again in Chronicles, we see this constant up and down. And even we, at Christ the Word, should be careful not to be complacent. We, we've been, we've enjoy, we're enjoying prosperity and the people, the, the leadership, as I, I think I mentioned last week, it, it was, wasn't easy in the beginning. And, and now that we're, we have our own building and we have all these young babies and it's just, it's glorious, quite frankly. But we don't want to get complacent. We don't, we want to keep, um, keep our eyes on the Lord and we call on the name of the Lord. So, um, they, the people had bit backslid, and Ezra got there and was really uh, very concerned. Some of the descendants uh, had blatantly disregarded the law of God. They were intermarrying. And when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe. And this relates, I was thinking this morning how this relates to, um, if you're in Lesson 15, like I think we're supposed to be in Lesson 15, right, in, in our small group study. And I answered question number three when I did question number one, because you know the one better thing that stood out to me was that the idea that sor sorrow is better than laughter. And the reason that that's true, and you'll talk about it, many of you today, when you get to question one or possibly question three, is that um, sorrow uh, is often produces change, ideally. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And that's why uh, sorrow is more productive than laughter. No one's going to say in general that joy is better than sorrow. The birth of a baby is, is much more joyful and more pleasing than the death of a loved one. But experiencing 
sorrow, experiencing death, experiencing uh, hardship uh, can be a much greater, much better teacher. And in the case of Ezra, um, this sorrow uh, led uh, to repentance. He prays for revival. It takes form, uh, part of this revival is a revival of Bible study and obedience to the revealed word of God. Uh, Ezra is credited with uh, uh, being like probably the most famous preacher in the Old Testament. They built a platform, so he, he preached to the people and they stood and listened. Uh, kind of the pattern perhaps that we have for worship uh, today. And so the Israelites take steps to turn from their disobedient lifestyle. Uh, all the people of Judah are gathered in a resolution. And this, was the, this is a really hard thing. They, the resolution was made to separate all foreign wives and even the children from those wives. And that had to be really terrible. I, I think that they spent three months and appointed magistrates to hear and resolve individual cases. And 113 cases of mixed marriage are identified and a strict separation was enacted. I can't even imagine how painful that might have been. And I, I don't know, uh, I can't say that that would necessarily be the rule for today. I read, when I, I went through last year in a personal, my personal devotion, I went through 1 Corinthians spent a whole year in 1 Corinthians, and there are some hard chapters in that book. And one of them, uh, in the middle, Paul says that an unbelieving spouse is sanctified, like a, uh, an unbelieving wife is sanctified by her husband and vice versa. And I think what Paul was trying to say is, you know, this was a new religion, if you will, and believers, someone would get saved and maybe their husband or their wife didn't. And what Paul was saying, don't divorce them because you found Christ and they didn't. When they say they're sanctified, we're not really sure what they mean, but what I think Paul meant in my study is not that the, that the believing wife or the believing husband makes that other person holy. I think, again, this is my commentary, not Christ the Word commentary. I think Paul was saying that the marriage is still sanctified. That in my study, I'm, I tend to believe, Paul was saying, look, don't, don't um, trash your marriage because you found Christ. Continue to, the, the marriage is still sacred in God's eyes. It's still, it's still holy. Sanctified be, means being holy. Your marriage is still holy. Your vow is still holy. Love your husband, love your wife, and pray that God leads them to the Lord. And I think that's what Paul was instructing these new Christians. He wasn't trying to break up families. Uh, this was, so when you read this, this was a very, I just read this with a heavy heart. Can you imagine being married and, to someone and, and this separation? But God do, knows what he's doing. God knows what is right. He does what is right. He doesn't make mistakes. And at this time, in this place, this seemed warranted. Because I think this is hard. I think we're, we're, we're being callous if we don't think so. Um, so I have uh, about 10 minutes left uh, to deal with these last two points. I probably have more. I've been uh, yapping quite a bit, as is customary, I suppose. Um, I only have a couple ones here, though. The first one is that God keeps his promises. I just mentioned that God doesn't make mistakes. Not only that, he, he keeps his promises. 
Um, not a single tribe really deserved God's benevolent treatment. Um, but God is faithful even when we're faithless. And I, it's time and time again, we'd have a good king. But what would happen is people would get prosperous, they'd get lazy, and they'd backslide. And it was just this, it was rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. It was the same, same thing. Um, but, but we are, should be grateful that God loves us even when we're obstinate. And what, what I learned reading uh, Chronicles, especially first and second, and Ezra, is that the restoration of Israel to their land was vitally important. It was important that they go back to that land. That land was part of the promises. It was important. So many promises and prophecies uh, have been associated with the land of Judah. Promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, even Moses, David, prophecies through Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah. Um, it's probably why, um, and these are just some examples, probably why some people, some Christians, are very uptight about what's happening in Israel. Now, I've said I'm not too uptight about it. Israel is an apostate nation. They're not following Jehovah. And God will do what he does. He may kick them out, but he'll bring them back. He, is he will preserve a remnant. Romans is very clear about that. So I'm not worried about what happens, but I'll pray for Israel. I pray for them. I pray that, but I pray for spiritual revival more than anything. That's what they need most. They, do they need protection from their, from their enemies? Yes. But what they need more is God. If they had God, they don't have to worry about it. Am I right? That's what the Bible teaches, right? But restoration of the promised land was indeed essential, right? It, it, this place was, was important. Uh, it kind of dovetails into the second point about preparation for the com coming uh, Messiah. Um, the return from exile in Babylon and the reestablish of the Jewish people in their own land paved the way for the coming of the promised Messiah. God's son was to be a descendant of David according to the flesh. Yet it was not sufficient to have the right ancestry. Jesus needed to be born in the right place because God predicted it through his prophets ahead of time. Otherwise, then God's word would not be true. So about two centuries before the return of the exiles, the Lord had promised this through the prophet of Micah. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, this is where Jesus would come from. And it was important. If the Jews never returned to Israel, if they never came back, never built the temple, never built the walls, never reestablished um, authentic worship there, then how would Christ have been born there? The Son of God was to be born in Bethlehem, in the land of promise, not in Babylon, not in the land of captivity. A remnant of Jews was to return to the promised land. Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Jerusalem were some of the geographic locations woven into the promises concerning our Lord's coming. Um, in just over 400 years after the days of Ezra. In the, I, isn't this such a great 
a great um, phrase in scripture, I think. We have a song about it. Um, but what I, I love this expression, fullness of time, because it, was, it, it means like everything had just like been bubbling up, right? And just had been, and at just the right time, Jesus came. At just the right time. It was, it was, God had been, had planning this, and it just, for him, it was just a, perhaps a moment, right? The twinkling of an eye for him to see the time pass. But for us, generation after generation after generation, and in the full, fullness of time, he sends Christ. Um, it, it had to be this way. Uh, and it's why, you know, it's, it's why, it's like, when I say I'm not worried about what's happened in Israel, believe me, I'm not saying I don't care about Jewish people. I care about what God is going to do. I care about God bringing his people back. Paul's going to later say that God's going, to, God's going to have a remnant for himself. And at some point, all Israel will be saved. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that expression means. And we, can, we could debate that. But God does care about his people, and he hasn't forgotten them. When it comes to application, you'll notice uh, it's kind of glaring, really, when the people return to Israel, the, to, to, to Jerusalem, to Judah. It's like all these words, you know, they sort of overlap. Uh, they didn't begin with building the walls. They started by building the altar. They wanted to build the temple. And, and that was important. Um, this is a beautiful illustration of, of the timeless truth that the atoning work must come first. That must be at the heart of our concerns, in the heart of our church, in our home, and really for our nation. You know, I get, I, I, again, I just don't, I don't get too um, wrapped up in all the political stuff that's going on. I, I, my trust is not in, in the president. It just isn't. And frankly, I have no reason to trust either one of those guys. And you know who I'm talking about. I, I, I don't think either one of them are, are, are godly men. And our trust is in, in the Lord. And if we're, if we're paying attention to what God has been telling us in Chronicles and in these books, is that all the people that were successful were what people? The people that trusted in their armies? In their presidents? It was the people who trusted in the Lord. Those are the people that enjoyed, enjoyed prosperity. And that's what we should place our trust in. Um, we cannot take one right step unless we go humbly to God. I, I love this, um, this quote. Um, we have nothing to bring to God, so we should be humble. We should be humble and go to him. Um, as such, the Apostle Paul determined to know nothing among the Corinthian converts except Jesus Christ. Um, the second point is true repentance, and I have two minutes left. And, you know, I, I say so many things, and I tell you how I forget stuff. Um, when David, near the time when Pastor David was wrapping up his preaching for the, before the transition, when Nathan would take over, he... Um, he said that, uh, and I know I'm getting off track here, but I, it's okay, I'm, I'm going to not even apologize. 
he said there is something if he's learned there's if there's one thing he's learned over time this one important truth and he and he he it was a great great sermon and he what he did is he he teased us with that thought right at the beginning but he didn't tell us for like at least 20 minutes and so me being the analytical type i'm trying to think what's he what's he think what's he talking about i'm trying to read the mind of the teacher right and what i was thinking he was going to say was repentance now he said that god is good and that's true and i've come to really appreciate that and as i get older and i realize that is that is an important truth to base your life on because just like in in ecclesiastes you know when we're reading about sorrow the sense of sorrow being better than joy right um, we have to remember that god is good but what i thought that pastor david was going to talk about was repentance Re true repentance is vital and you know you what was Ezra's response sorrow but you know I got to get going here um, it's not enough just to feel bad for your sin you've got to do something about it and so sorrow is not better than laughter if sorrow doesn't produce repentance understand because if you're not going to repent you may as well just go like Luther says, you know, if you're going to sin, just, well, go ahead and just live it up, right? You may as well go back to laughing. So if your sorrow's not producing repentance, then go back to laughing because you're not getting it done. Um, our, our repentance um, should, produce free, should produce fruit. Everyone's leaving, so it's obvious I'm going, I'm going over. So um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. That was, uh, yeah, it's, it's, Repentance is key. And I, 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 I'd be happy to talk about repentance in every, in every message I give, every talk, every lesson. If we're not getting better, then, then we're not doing it right. We have to keep focus on getting better. And as an older guy, people ask me, how are you doing? Not bad for an old guy. In my heart, I don't think of myself as old. But I know it. My hair is falling out. My eyes aren't as good. I get aches and pains. I don't sleep as well. I'm getting old. I can't deny it. But you know what? I have more than ever before, I know that I need to get better. I need to repent. My sins are ever before me. And I need to repent. And I hope if, you, if you've got it under control, then just then use your time and pray for me. Because I have got to do better. My wife and I talked about it this morning before prayer. I, you know, I'm, I'm being unkind to my special needs son. I, I lose patience. He's, he's hard work. And I've been, I've been short with him. And I need to do better. So please, please, repent. Trust in God, though. You can't just pull up your own bootstraps. He will guide you in repentance. It's his grace that will help you. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to do better. It's got to be more than that. Lean on him. Do not trust in your own understanding. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, 
please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.